All right. If you would turn into your Bibles to the Gospel of John, we're going to be in John chapter 1. Uh, it is the Advent season, and we're kind of doing a little bit of double duty here. It is an Advent series that we're in, but we're also starting a big series through the book of John that will run through next year. Yeah. So we're kind of doing two things at once. It is Advent, yes. I don't want to minimize from that. Um, but also we are preaching verse by verse through the book of John, and that's starting today. Um, so John chapter 1, we're looking at verses 1 to 5. The message is entitled, Jesus, the Word of God. Now, many of you know there are four Gospels, uh, and the Gospels are interesting because uh, I don't have time to go all into that. I can do that later, but <laughs> there's a lot of interesting things about the Gospels. One of the really interesting things is each of the Gospel authors, writers, has chosen to do something different with the birth narrative. So in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew actually starts with just the genealogy of Jesus. He just starts listing names. That's how Matthew starts. Mark is like, I don't got time for Christmas. No narrative, no birth narrative at all. It's like John the Baptist, let's go. Which is hilarious, right? It's like, dude, like what's, what's wrong with you? I don't know. Is that heretical? I, I probably shouldn't say that about, a, about John Mark. He's a sweet dude, apparently. A little flighty. Sorry, I'm getting into nerdy stuff. Um, uh, you know, he abandoned Paul. It doesn't matter. It's fine. Luke. Now, Luke. Luke tells a story. It's, it's the Charlie Brown story. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> the Luke story. And it puts the birth of Jesus in an amazing sort of historical context. You got fun names like Quirinius. That's a fun name to say. And Luke has just beautiful narrative. So Matthew, genealogy. Mark, I don't got time for it. Luke, let's spend lots of time on the birth narrative. And then there's John. Now John does something that's completely different from any of the other gospel writers. John goes, okay, I'm going to talk about Jesus, but what I'm going to do is I'm not just going to take like a a 30,000 foot view of this thing. I'm actually going to go on the 30 million light year expanse view to talk about Jesus. Because when John starts to talk about Jesus, he starts (laughs) pre-creation, He starts at at the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. Before there was a beginning, he starts there. So that's what we're going to be talking about. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. The message is in three parts. Number one, I just want to remind ourselves what Advent is. Number two, we're going to look at the text. We're just going to walk through the text on Jesus, the Word of God, from verses 1 to 5. And then I want to make some application. Sound good? All right. I didn't hear a whole lot of yet. Does that sound good? Okay. All right. I was just making sure. I mean, I can call it right now if you... Maybe I shouldn't make that promise. What is Advent? We talked about this last week, so I'll do this quickly. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. And it's a season, uh, the four Sundays prior to Christmas Day... Those four Sundays, traditionally the church from like the third century, started celebrating Advent. And I mentioned this last week, that Advent is to Christmas Day what Lent is to Easter Sunday. 
It's a, it's a preparation season. It's a reflective season. It's a season where we're, we're taking time to think about some things prior to a pretty big day in the calendar, which is Christmas Day in this sense. So that's what Advent is. And this coming arrival, we talked about how there are a dual meaning for this coming or arrival, this Advent, that there is actually two Advents that we're thinking about during these four weeks. There is, of course, the first Advent, which is the coming of the Christ child, celebrated on Christmas Day. And then there is the second coming of Jesus, where he comes not as a baby, but as a victorious king to destroy all evil, all brokenness, even destroy death itself, and to make all things right. So Advent, it has a, you kind of like have two minds about you during this season. Like, yay, Christmas, baby, this is awesome. Also, come Lord Jesus and make it right. So there's a, a very real nature. There's a, there's a rawness and a, um, an authenticity about the season of Advent. That when we're trying to mask our feelings of brokenness with lots of like candy and presents, <laughs> We're actually taking time as a church family to go, wait a second, stuff isn't right. And I can slam all these candy canes, but actually in my heart, I still sense that something's not right. And, and, and things are, are broken enough that we need Jesus to come back and to make it right. So there is a, a sober reality to the season of Advent. Yes, we should enjoy twinkly lights. Yes, we should enjoy a party on the porch. Yes, we should enjoy those things. Also, let's face the reality of our world is still very broken and we need a king who will come and make it right. So that's what we're thinking about during this Advent season. Last week, we started first uh, Sunday of Advent with a message called He is Coming. Today, we're looking at the Word of God Next week, we'll look at the light of the world, continuing in John 1. The following Sunday, we'll look at the word made flesh, continuing in John 1. And then Christmas Eve here in this room, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, two services. We're also planning on streaming those services, just so that you're aware. 4 and 5 on Christmas Eve. And then Christmas Day, which is a Sunday, we are celebrating in homes. So we'll just, Merry Christmas, no service here on Sunday, Christmas Day. Okay? Okay. Um, Last thing that I want to mention, when we're talking Advent, I think this is just really, really important and helpful to us. I think it's been helpful to me, and I want to encourage you in this. Um, during this season, if you're thinking to yourself, okay, what, what's, how, how should I approach Advent? How should, what's once way, one way that I could approach this season? I just want to lovingly say and encourage you to be very intentional about your spiritual disciplines and rhythms. Because our schedules, I don't know, maybe it's just my schedule, our schedules get overrun in a hurry during the season. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I gotta go to this party and we gotta look at the family calendar and then I got a calendar on my phone but it's not the same as the family calendar and then there's miscommunication. Anybody else? Or just me, just me and Jess. And I gotta go to this thing and I gotta make sure we gotta cook this thing to take it to this thing and this person wants us to do this. It's just, it's just stuff. I want to encourage you to, and I said this last week, to stay plugged in to Jesus this season. Because the, the likelihood of you moving through this season without staying plugged into Jesus and being joyful this season is low. 
That's just speaking from many years of experience personally. That we're doing, we're talking about Christmas, we're thinking about Christmas, and we think that somehow we're connecting with Jesus, but we're just doing Christmassy religious stuff. So I want to encourage you to stay plugged into Jesus. Whatever your rhythms are, whatever your rhythms are of practicing the presence of God, whatever your rhythm is of communion with God, whatever your prayer rhythms are, do not abandon those because you got to make a casserole and then you got to do all these other things. Do, Do not abandon those or you will find yourself on Christmas Day on fumes. Do you know what I'm saying? So I, there's just some loving pastoral counsel to you. Because when we're on fumes spiritually is when we get super cranky with people. And we're actually called to be joyful people that are connected to the vine, connected to Jesus. So I just want to encourage you this Advent season, stay plugged in with the Lord. A lot of people would be like, stay plugged in at church. I'd rather you just stay plugged in to the Lord. You know what I'm saying? Yes, stay plugged into community. I'm not denying that. But really plug in with the Lord. Stay connected to the Lord. Do not abandon rhythms of connection and communion with God. Okay, let's look at the text. John 1, we're looking at the Word of God. There's three truths that I just want you to see in this text. Number one, Jesus is eternal. Number two, Jesus is creator. And number three, Jesus is life. We're just going to move right through the text. So let's begin. Jesus is eternal. This is John 1, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So interesting. He, do you see that? He was in the beginning with God. So a couple things I want you to see. Jesus is actually pre-existent. He is pre-eternal. Because sometimes we have a weird thought in our mind. I don't know, maybe you haven't thought this, but I've thought this sometimes. When we think about Christmas Day, Jesus coming, he's a baby, he's born in a manger. Sometimes we think to ourselves that Jesus actually started on his birthday. Does that make sense? Like sometimes we would actually be actually a little bit confused about, about the Godhead. We'll be confused about Jesus as if Jesus just shows up into, uh, into time and space just on his birthday. Are you all hearing what I'm saying? But actually, no, 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 that is not true. Jesus is pre-eternal. Now, he comes incarnate in flesh. That's coming in a couple of weeks as we go through John. But he comes in flesh at a specific time in history. But Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, actually is pre-eternal. He is God. So I just want to make sure that you see that. That he is pre-existent. It says, in the beginning was the Word. It's funny, that language, in the beginning, does that sound like anything else to you? Like that phrase, that prepositional phrase, in the beginning. What does that sound like? Genesis 1, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. John is, is intentionally... Uh, bringing a phrase that everyone who sees that goes, oh, yeah, I think he's referring to Genesis 1. And he is. He's talking about Jesus as the one who was there at the beginning of all things. So in the beginning was the word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is pre-existent. He didn't just start on December 25th, 2,000 years ago. He is pre-existent. Also interesting, he says, in the beginning was... The Word. Now that's interesting. Because the Bible actually doesn't start with Jesus' name. 
It calls him the Word. The Word. Now, what's interesting about this word logos is that it reveals a couple of things, at least in the Christian formation. Philosophers have taken the word logos and made it to be an impersonal philosophical idea. Uh, But this is not true uh, of the logos. The logos is a person. (laughs) That's in the text. We're about to get to it. But it's interesting, the word word uh, communicates something. It communicates revelation, doesn't it? It communicates communication. It communicates a desire to be known. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Like the word word has a communicative thing about it. It's so interesting that God in and of himself, he is a speaking word kind of God. Like, like he wants to be known, I guess is what I'm saying. In fact, he wants to be known by you. So much so that when John is talking about this Jesus, he calls him the word. He is revealing himself. He is God's self-revelation. Follow me. Jesus is God's self-revelation to the world. When God wants to say, hey, this is what I'm like, he puts Jesus in front of us. To say, this is what I'm like. This is who I'm like. This is the way I think. This is the way I I behave. This is the, the kind of God that I am. I reveal myself in my word. He is a speaking and revealing God. And it's so interesting, when we think word, a lot of times we'll think like the word. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like we'll think about the Bible as the word. But actually, did you know that the greatest word is in fact a person, not a book? That is not to deny the authoritative, all-sufficient nature of this book. It is just to say that Jesus is the ultimate word of God. Does that make sense? (laughs) That God's self-revelation is not necessarily like ink on a page. It is a, a person to be experienced and known. So what's important about that is when we come to the Bible and we're, we're saying we want to be people of the word, yes and amen. We want, to, we want to know the word. We want to read the word. We want to understand God because God has revealed himself in all of these pages. But we don't want to lose the fact that when I come to the Bible, I want to learn about the word himself in the Bible. Does that make sense? So it, it, it's just so... I grew up in a tradition where the Trinity in many ways was like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. Like the Bible took on divine uh, attributes. And, and actually, in many religious systems, the scriptures are divine. There, there is a worship nature. There is a, there's a worshiping of words on page. But actually, the one who is due worship is the word, but he is a person, not ink on a page. So when you come to the Bible and you're reading, you're looking for the word that is in this Bible, and his name is Jesus. Last thing that I want you to see in the text here in verses 1 and 2 is that Jesus is God and Jesus is with God. It's so mysterious in this text. You know, sometimes we read the Bible and we're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Let's just read this text again. Just, Just let's read it again. In fact, you can look at it right there. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, right? So, okay, we're okay. So, so there's a word with God. And then what's the next phrase? 
And the word was God. Hold on, time out, time out, time out, time out, time out, time out. Because sometimes you read the Bible and you're like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. Does that make sense? How, how, could, the, how could the word be with God and then also the word is God or was God? It's funny, right here we see uh, already some Trinitarian language in the text. That we understand the God of the Bible is one God and three persons. In this text, we actually see two of the persons at play. Actually, you see the Trinity and then one of the persons at play, I guess we should say that. So you have God, and then you have this with God, who is also God. I know, is that confusing? <laughs> it might be. <laughs> we understand the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity says that there is one God. There's one God that we worship. We don't worship three gods. There's one God. And that one God is three distinct, unique fully divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's not three gods, but it's one God. But it's not like three sort of like shades of this one God. No, these three persons are unique in and of themselves. In fact, they are so unique that each individually are fully 100% divine. So the Father is 100% God, and Jesus is 100% God, and the Holy Spirit is 100% God. Now, if you do some barnyard math on that, you know what I'm saying? If I got 100% and 100% and 100%, that's a lot of percent. Right? I mean, I'm from Texas, and that's still hard, right? But this is the mystery of the Trinity. And theologians and Armchair theologians have done all kinds of things to try to explain that. Let me, just, let me just be real honest with you. The biblical revelation of who God is, is uh, it will start to make your brain hurt. God is one God, not three gods. There's one, it is monotheistic in that sense. There's one God. Also, are three unique, fully divine persons in this one God, Father, Son, spirit. So thus, when you see a text like this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. You see this tension at play. So there's Trinity there. I'm not going to be able to explain the Trinity in the remaining time. So I'm going to keep going on this. But I just want you to see um, the eternal existence of the triune God, even in this text, right from the beginning. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And it's interesting because the parallel with Genesis chapter 1 also shows that, that the Spirit was hovering over the waters. You remember that from Genesis chapter 1. So in the Genesis 1 chapter and in the John 1, you have the, the Trinity at play. It's fascinating. Now you may say, okay, well, Jamie, so what? That's a lot of, that's a lot of fancy Texas talk you got up there. So what? Like what? Why, why does that matter? I just want to submit something to you. The fact that the creator of all things is himself community is a really, really big deal when it comes to our existence as the created ones. Because it means this, before there was anything, there was mutual love, yieldedness, communication, and family before anything began. 
If you have a conception of God where God is an impersonal force, an immovable mover that just does something, listen, that is not going to create a very loving, mutually submissive environment in creation. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? If you have an impersonal force that creates all things, there is no basis for morality or ethics or yielding to one another or communicating in love to one another at all because the beginning of all things is this impersonal force. If, in fact, God is an impersonal force, a mono thing, then there is no reason why we should love and respect one another. Because the basis of all created things is a mono thing. Thus, if that's true, then I could just go around and it's all about power. It's whoever can beat up the other person and take what's theirs. Are you all hearing what I'm saying? But the fact that God himself is an actual relational, mutually submissive, loving person of three in and of himself as family, revealed as father, son, and spirit before anything began, that gives us basis for ethics and morality and love and yieldedness to one another. This is an amazing truth. And it is uniquely Christian. There, there is no other religion that allows for an actual creation whereby we would yield to one another and call each other family. Because you're dealing with impersonal, objective, mono things. Okay. And beyond that, this mutually submissive, loving family actually wants to come and make their home with you. Which is beautiful. That age-old feeling of, am I alone? Does anybody really know me? Does anybody care? Like, yeah, I got family, I got friends, I got people, I, got, I go to a church and there's people. But that, that gnawing thing on the inside where you're just kind of like, does anybody really know me? Not, not the me that I present at Marymount Church. Not the me that I present at the marketplace or the me that I present to my friends. But does anybody actually know the me, me? Y'all know what I'm saying? And there is one, and he's three, and he wants to come and dwell with you. So much so that he comes into creation to be with us. Jesus says, the Father and I will come and make our home with you. We will come and dwell by the Spirit. This triune God comes and wants to be with us. So I just want to encourage you. One of the themes in the book of John that we're walking through is the intimacy that is found with God through the triune God by the Spirit. It's one of the themes of the book of John. So I just want to encourage you to just be thinking, am I experiencing intimacy, deep relationship with the triune God? And if I'm not, why not? And if I'm not, and I'm created to actually be with this God, then what am I going to do this season to engage relationally with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Okay. Let's keep going. Y'all still, y'all okay? Okay. Not only is Jesus eternal, Jesus is the creator. Let's look at verse three. <laughs> this is big time stuff, man. All things, somebody say all. All, all things 
were made through him, this word, this second member of the Trinity, Jesus. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So it's interesting. Not only was Jesus pre-existent before time began, before creation began, not only was he just hanging out, he's like, oh, the Father and the Spirit and Jesus. We're like, yeah, man, this is awesome. Not only was he just hanging out, he is the word who speaks all things. He is the creator. He is the one who actually speaks. It's the word. And all things are created by him. This is what the Bible is saying. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on the earth. He made the things that we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. This is a stud of a dude, okay? Are you all with me? Let me keep going. Hebrews 1, 2 to 3. The Father has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And this Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Every star is where it is and stays there because Jesus goes, stay there. Like gravity is a thing because Jesus said gravity should be a thing. Are are y'all hearing what I'm saying? (laughs) Like all the things that we base scientific method, like there is a a consistency in the universe in such a way that we can actually make scientific proofs. We can actually make theories and then see if these theories are true. The entire basis of those things is because Jesus says this is how it's going to be and then he holds it there. Like, the basis of the scientific method is that actually that Jesus is the one who says, gravity is this way, and I'm going to hold gravity just like that. Oh, the universe is going to be just like this. I'm going to hold it that way. That's interesting. Okay, I'm going to keep going. There's more there, but. And here's, what, here's what's mind-boggling. You all ready? <laughs> when Jesus comes as a baby... He's a baby, and he's still holding the universe together as a baby. Anybody? Anybody? He's a baby. Also holding the universe together. Isn't that awesome? This is the... Yeah. For real. Can you imagine like holding gravity together? I mean, it's just, you know. It's like billions of billions and billions of billions of galaxies. He's like, also. The baby's the boss. The baby's the boss. The baby's the boss of all things. Okay, so what's the so what to that? Like, oh, okay, well, so what? Well, 
And we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, especially in the identity series. The creator gets dibs on defining you. He's the boss. Like when someone creates something, that creator gets to define what this thing is. Like I'm, I'm fashioning this thing, whatever this thing is. I get to tell it what it is. I get to define it. I get to give it purpose and meaning and, and, and destiny. We like all these languages, like destiny and legacy. Actually, the boss is the one who tells you what your destiny and your legacy is. And this boss came as a baby into creation, in, into our world. So I just want to encourage you to think about it this way. <laughs> Sorry, one last thing. <laughs> it's, it's too much. Also... God, the second member of the Trinity who created all things, holding galaxies together, also entrusts himself to a teenage girl. You know what I'm saying? So, it, historically, in terms of context, that Mary was betrothed to Joseph, very likely in this historical scenario and context, she's like 13, 14, 15? And the creator of all things is entrusting himself to a teenager. I've got teenagers. I, I, I mean, it's difficult to entrust just about anything of value. I mean, Kate, okay, I don't want to hate. I, okay, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But like, you're, Mary is holding the one who holds galaxies. Amen. She, she is holding the creator of all things. Can you imagine? Like, ah, you know, <laughs> dropping the baby, whatever. You're holding the one who holds the stars. I just want to encourage you. Some of you, in your mind, maybe even in your, your, your sphere of influence, you feel like you're the insignificant Mary in that social system. I just want to say, Jesus is perfectly happy to work in the midst of those who are, quote-unquote, insignificant in culture. <laughs> like, God is perfectly happy to use you. You're like, but I'm a, I'm a teenage girl in a society where girls have no value at all, which is that society in this time period, in the text. And God's like, no problem. I hold the galaxies. Also, I will entrust myself to you. <laughs> I just want to encourage you. Some of you are like Mary, and Jesus has made, has made some promises to you, and he is calling you to do some things, and you're like, no, 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 it can't be. It can't be that he would use me in this way. No, actually, he wants to use you in that way, and the response to God should be just like Mary's. It's fascinating. You remember Zechariah's response and then Mary's response? I know I'm in John, but I got to go to Luke real quick. Do you remember Zechariah's response and then Mary's response? Zechariah's like, uh, I don't know about this. I'm a learned scholar. I don't know about this. Right? And what does Mary say? Um, she goes, well, how's that going to work? How, how exactly? I'm not, I haven't been with Joseph. We're betrothed, but we're not married yet. How's that going to work? He says, well, the Spirit is going to come upon you. And then you'll bear the, the Son of God. And this is what Mary says. Let it be to me as has been spoken. <laughs> Whereas Zechariah is like, well, let me think about this. I went to class and like studied a lot of stuff and like, 
I don't think this is going to work. So the angel goes, well, you're going to be mute for the entire time that uh, the baby is in Elizabeth's. He's like, boom, he can't talk. And Mary, and th- this is a scholarly dude who in that culture would have been considered, whoa, I mean, okay, he's wise, he's learned. I mean, he's, he's, he's a mature, quote unquote, believer, right? He's a mature person. And then Mary, the 14-year-old, is like, well, how's that going to work? I don't know. And she go, then the angel explains. And she goes, well, okay. God has said it, so let it be to me as you have said. I just want to encourage you. God is speaking to you. He is speaking to you. Are you hearing him? And is your response to him, let it be as you have said? I, I'm willing to do what you've asked me to do. I feel fairly insignificant at my workplace. I feel fairly insignificant in my family system. I feel, I feel like I don't really have the skills and the abilities to really do what you're calling me to do, but let it be to me as you have said. So I just want to encourage you in that way. If God trusts himself with a teenage girl, I think he wants to do some things in your life. <laughs> and he is the creator of all things. And he wants to work through you. Okay, let's keep going. That was good. Last one. Jesus' life, verses 4 and 5, and we'll be finished. Not only is he eternal, not only is he the creator, he is life. Verse 4 and 5, John says this, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the source of all life. He says, in him was life. He he is the source of all living things. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus said about himself later in this gospel that we'll get to. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he says. He says other things like, I am the resurrection and the life, this Jesus. And it's interesting, this play here, not just life, also light. Life, light, life, light. I think it's so interesting, like Christmas season, um, there is a, 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 a lot of light. Do you notice like Christmas decorations? There's a lot of light. You all know what I'm talking about? We got a tree, which this is a crazy idea. Let's, let's cut down a tree, put it in our house, right? And then we're going to like try to keep that thing alive, like just keep shoving water and the thing. But then we're going to put lights on it. Is that weird to anybody? It's kind of weird to me. Let's cut down a tree. It's perfectly fine, but we're going to cut it, put it in our house. You know what we should do? We should put lights on it. But I, 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 I'm saying this. Because I want to reframe, I want to encourage you to reframe. When you, when you leave this place and you start seeing lights everywhere, I want you to be thinking about Jesus, the light of the world. <laughs> that we recapture that imagery. It's not twinkly lights just so it's like, ah, oh, lights. Actually, those twinkly lights are communicating. There, there is a life and a light that has overcome darkness. And his name is Jesus. And so I guess we're going to put it on a tree and then think about Jesus, you know. This light. Not only is he life, but he's light. Now, it's interesting. In religious systems, 
You know, there are some religious systems that see darkness and light in a sort of yin-yang, sort of uh, dualistic way, so that darkness is equal uh, in strength and in power to light. Do you know what I'm talking about? And, and there's a, it's, a, it's an entire, multiple religions actually have this, where it's like there's this eternal struggle between darkness and light, neither of which are stronger than the other. So there's just always this kind of little thing right here. A lot of our movies have a lot of this, especially as movies have moved into like, we want to create evil characters that are also like really understandable. Does anybody know what I'm saying? Like we'll create like this evil person that does evil things and then you'll think to yourself, it actually kind of makes sense. It should make sense actually because they're evil. But it's part of, it's part of this narrative to, to figure out a way to, to describe evil and good as kind of the same thing or at least equal parts of the same thing. Are you all hearing what I'm saying right now? But actually, the text ex- expresses something completely different. Not a dualism between darkness and light, but the light is significantly greater than the darkness. It's in the text. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. <laughs> there is no dualistic understanding in Christianity. It's like not a fair fight. Jesus shows up, darkness leaves. It, it, so much so, like when you turn on a light... You don't like watch the shadows like slowly depart. You know what I'm saying? Like light, darkness doesn't go, I guess I'll go out now and slowly leave the room. That's why we call it the speed of light. To our own eyes, it's almost instantaneous. Are you hear what I'm saying? In Christianity, actually, Jesus is the light. And when Jesus shows up, darkness, gone. And this is before crucifixion, by the way. This is before he comes in humility to die for the sins of the world. Where darkness is thinking to itself, oh, we got him now, man. Let's nail this, buddy. Let's nail this joker up here. We got him now. See, a lot of times our concept of light coming and dispelling darkness is a lot of power, power, power. Jesus, in the upside-down kingdom, comes in humility, dying for creation, such that the darkness is looking at Jesus like, this is going to be awesome, dude. Let's kill this thing. Let's kill this dude. This is the son of God. Let's kill him. And then they, they fulfill in killing Jesus. And darkness is like, yeah. Satan himself, yeah. Except three days later. (laughs) Three days later, darkness is like, we got him, we got him, we got him, we got him, we got him. We're just as strong as he is. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, uh uh-oh. Oh, he triumphs over darkness. He actually triumphs over death. He triumphs over your death. Not only that, he has triumphed over every despicable thought and action you have ever committed. Every thought that has gone through your mind that you thought to yourself, I hope no one could ever read my mind because if they knew what I just thought, they'd have thought that I'm a jacked up person. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Or the things that are going on inside of us where we think, what kind of darkness is inside of me? Jesus has actually, dying on the cross, he became that darkness, your darkness. Jesus actually nailed to a cross, actually is taking on your sin. The Bible says that he became sin. The, the triumph of light over darkness is not some power play where he's just pushing darkness out. Actually, it is the submissive king actually dying for you and me and dying for his creation, coming into creation and dying for it and taking on the punishment and the darkness that we deserve. 
And then being buried in the ground and then rising triumphant over your sin and my sin. Rising triumphant over the guilt and shame that we all are feeling and and deserve from God because of our sin. And he has triumphed over it. And he says, if you'll come to me, I will give you everlasting life. The triumph of God over darkness is seen in an innocent baby who grows up and dies for his creation. And the darkness has not overcome him. I just want to encourage you with hope this morning that there is resurrection coming. And even in the midst of great sorrow and difficulty, the king is coming to take dead things and bring them back to life. And we can't see it now. It's not entirely clear now. That's what we talked about last week about there's a lot of whys that we ask. Why? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why didn't this happen? And the truth is that when he returns and we see him face to face, that actually we will, there will be an eternal weight of glory. It will far outweigh seeing Jesus, the resurrected one, actually will far outweigh all the sorrow and the brokenness and the pain that we have ever experienced. That's what, that's what Paul says in Romans 8. So we're looking forward to that day of seeing him again. And seeing the fulfillment and the consummation of light destroying darkness at the end of all things. All right, let's apply this. Make some application, and then we're going to have some time of prayer together. First application is this. I want to encourage you to draw near Jesus. Draw near to Jesus. I'm going to encourage you to, to see this Jesus who is coming as a baby, an innocent baby, trusting himself to a teenage girl. He grows up. He lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross in your place for your sin. He's raised on the third day, and he invites you to come and receive forgiveness, restoration. And then he says, I will put my spirit inside of you. I will come and dwell with you. I'm Emmanuel, God with us. I also want to be God with you, personally. I want to encourage you to recommit yourself and draw near to Jesus again this season. I say, you know what? I'm kind of tired of doing this thing my own, my own way. It's not really working. <laughs> I don't know if, if there have been multiple times in my life where, even as a believer, I just keep trying to do it the Jamie way, and then I realize, that's not working. You know? Like, it's just, this isn't working. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, I could just let Jesus be the Lord of my life. And then it works. And by works, I don't mean like everything is perfectly fine, everything's successful, and some sort of like golden ticket magical thing. No, I'm saying that actually walking with God is how we are designed to be. You get to, into a flow with God rather than just trying to do your own thing. So I, w- I want to encourage you to draw near to Jesus today. He has come into creation to be with you, so I invite you to draw near to him. Secondly, I'm going to invite you to trust Jesus. He created all things. He holds all things together. He holds the galaxies in place. I want to encourage you to trust him with the thing you're worried about right now. If he can hold gravity, I think he can handle what's going on in your life. And y'all know what I'm talking about. 
If you just, if you just give yourself a couple seconds. In fact, let's just do that. Lord, will you just reveal to all of us exactly what we're worried about right now? Let's just ask him. It's usually the first thing that comes to mind. And then it starts to make you feel a little nervous in your stomach. So whatever that thing is, it's not greater than gravity. You can trust Jesus with this thing. He's the creator of all things. He says, I will walk with you through this thing. I will sustain you through this thing. He says, be like Mary. Be like Mary. Let it be done to me as you have said, that you've promised to be with me, to never leave me nor forsake me. I invite you to just give it to him and say, I'm not big enough to handle this. I'm giving it to you. It's your responsibility to handle it. And then give it to him. He's the boss. And, and I want to encourage you. Some of you are actually experiencing quite a bit of freedom because you're like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's nice to give that to Jesus. I, I want to encourage you. This is partly experience, but partly I feel like it's from the Lord uh, right now. Uh, the enemy will try to hand that back to you this week, just so you know. In fact, the enemy is going to be like, put it back on, like on your backpack. Like, uh, and Jesus is promising, just give it to me again. Just, just trust me again with this thing. Just hand it over to me again. Does that make sense? That the enemy will try to hand that back to you? And you're like, I, I don't want this. I already gave it to Jesus. And then you just give it back to Jesus. Just hand it over to him. You can trust him. You can trust the baby who's the boss in your life. And then last application. And um, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, I'll just read the Bible and then and we'll explain it. This is what the Bible says. This is 2 Corinthians. And Paul's talking to the Corinthian church, and he's explaining what the enemy has done and is currently doing. And I believe in many ways the enemy is trying to do that to every single person in this room, including myself. So here's what the Bible says. He's talking about the gospel, and it's the gospel is being veiled being veiled to unbelievers. Paul writes, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, this is Satan himself, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then Paul says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is, is using this language of life and light to describe what the enemy is doing, and then what God does in the gospel. And the enemy literally is like, don't see Jesus. Don't think about Jesus. Don't look at him. Blind your heart, heart, blind your mind, blind your ears. No Jesus. Don't let Jesus. Don't let this dude talking about Jesus even make sense to you. And that's what the enemy is doing actively. By the way, also to believers. 
This is why it's a big deal. You have an enemy, and he is actively trying to blind you from the glory of Jesus. And what's great about the gospel is actually the gospel, Paul says, it is God, the the same God who said, let there be light, Jesus saying, let there be light, and there was light, Genesis 1 and John 1. This same God, Paul says, has shown the light of the gospel on our hearts such that we see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Listen, to see Jesus in all of his glory is a supernatural work of God in your life. I want to encourage you. There are supernatural forces. I'm not trying to be like real marvelly right now in sci-fi, but this is actually a biblical worldview. There are spiritual forces, one of which is trying to blind you from the glory of Jesus. And God himself is like, no, I want you to see Jesus in all of his glory and beauty. And I want to encourage you to actively pray. Holy Spirit, would you help me to see Jesus in all of his glory? I want to see him. I want to see him more than I see twinkly lights on the tree. I want to see him in the lights on the tree. And I want to see him in the broken experiences of my life when I'm sitting and talking to someone and there is great uh, fractured relationship. I want to see the glory of Jesus Christ in this relationship. I want to encourage you to actively, intentionally pray that the Spirit would open your eyes to see Jesus. And to be aware of the fact that the enemy is actively trying to blind you from the glory of Jesus. It ticks me off personally. Because there'll be moments in worship where I'll hear someone preaching and I'm thinking to myself, Jesus is God, this is amazing. And then it feels like 15 minutes later, I'm like, uh, do you know what I'm saying? And You walk into this like molasses, like spiritual molasses. And, and, and you just keep trudging along and you don't realize, actually, you're being blinded from the glory of Jesus. And I hate the enemy for that. I hate that my heart is not 100% on fire for Jesus all the time. And I realize that that's not coming until I see him face to face. I get that. I also hate the blindedness of the enemy towards me. I hate that in some moments of worship, I'm like, I am all yours, Jesus, 100%. And then 15 minutes later, my kid says something to me or Jess says something to me. And I'm not even sure, I'm not even thinking about Jesus. I'm not even sure Jesus exists. You know what I'm saying? I want to encourage you to actively and intentionally guard your mind and your heart with the way that you see Jesus. Are you being blinded? Or is the gospel shining on your heart in such a way that you see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus? I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite prayer teams to come up as well. So applications, I'm inviting you to draw near to Jesus. Second application, I'm inviting you to trust him with the stuff that you're very worried about and anxious about. I'm I'm inviting you to give that to Jesus, to trust him. And thirdly, I'm inviting you to consider your mind and your heart. Are you being blinded to the glory of Jesus? And will you intentionally pray that the Spirit would shine the, the light of the gospel on your heart, that you would see Jesus in all of his glory?